Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are the Bariatric Center at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. And we have really enjoyed being the bariatric team uh, talking to you through podcasts over the last several years. I'm Dr. Corey McBride, and I am the director of MIS and Bariatric Surgery. And I'm joined today by two of my partners, Dr. Tiffany Tanner and Dr. Ivy Haskins. Today, we wanted to talk about two very important articles that were recently published, the Splendid and Brave Studies. Both of these trials look at how bariatric surgery impacts medical comorbidities. First, let's talk about the Splendid trial. Obesity can have a profound impact on multiple medical comorbidities, including increasing the risk of cancer. Corey, uh, can you tell us more about this study? I'd be happy to. This is really one of the pivotal studies that was published within the last year, and it comes out of the Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Ali Aminian is the lead author. Dr. Aminian is actually very known in this body of literature for articles like this, where they've compared the bariatric patients from the Cleveland Clinic healthcare system to weight and similarly matched patients who have not had surgery and looked at outcomes. Uh, Last year, they published a similar trial to this one looking at major adverse cardiac events. And if you haven't read that article, I would also encourage you to do so. This article, however, that was published uh, recently, it was called the Splendid Trial, which stood for the Surgical Procedures and Long-Term Effectiveness in Neoplastic Disease Incident and Death. And with a long name like that, I understand why they called it Splendid. But they followed the similar pattern that they used in previous studies, where they had a matched cohort. They took all of the patients with a, who were between 18 and 80 years old, with a BMI of 35 to 50, who had undergone bariatric surgery at the Cleveland Clinic Healthcare System over about a 13-year period of time. And after some exclusions, that came to about 3,000 patients. The patients had either a primary Roux-en-Y gastric bypass or a primary sleeve. That actually broke down about two-thirds Roux-en-Y and one-third sleeve. Now, they did have some exclusion criteria, as I mentioned. They excluded patients who had any history of cancer or carcinoma in situ, if they had a history of excessive alcohol use or medical conditions related to alcohol use disorder, if they had received an organ transplant, if they were HIV positive, and several other issues, including ascites, peptic ulcer disease, if they were on hemodialysis, if they had congestive heart failure or an ejection fraction less than 20%, or a history of admission to their emergency department within five days prior to surgery. They also looked back to see if the patient, when the patient established with the Cleveland Clinic before getting enrolled in the trial, and they tried to find patients that had been following with the Cleveland Clinic for at least 12 months before they entered this study, because what they were really trying to find were patients who get their primary care through the Cleveland Clinic. After, they started with about 5,000 patients, and after all of the exclusions, they ended up uh, with a lower number, um, approximately 3,000 patients. These patients that were then matched five to one to non-surgical patients, which then ended up giving about 30,000 patients in the control group. 
And what they really were trying to identify is what were the chances that these patients would get their first time cancer of an obesity-related cancer? Now, the 13 obesity-related cancers they were looking at were either esophageal cancer, renal cell cancer, postmenopausal breast cancer. So either the women were greater than 55 or they'd had a, a previous bilateral oophorectomy and so had gone into premature menopause and then developed a breast cancer. They also looked at cancers of the gastric cardia, colon, rectum, liver, gallbladder, pancreas, ovary, uterine, or thyroid, as well as multiple myeloma. And so those were the primary endpoints. The secondary endpoints looked at all types of cancers. So even the cancers that we do not traditionally think about being associated with obesity. And then finally, um, the cancer-related mortality. So what was the chances that patients would have died of a cancer in the study follow-up? They also wanted to look at the weight loss in the surgery cohort versus the non-surgery cohort out to about 10 years. Because what they wanted to try to understand is if they found a difference, was there amount of weight loss that seemed to predict these better results? Now, for the primary endpoint, they found what um, other studies had suggested they would probably find, and that is that bariatric surgery lowers the risk of developing an obesity-related cancer. At 10 years out, the bariatric surgery group had a 2.9% risk, whereas the control group had a 4.9% risk. As far as the secondary endpoints, meaning any kind of cancer, not just obesity-related cancer, the risk in the bariatric group was 6.8% and the non-surgery group was 8.3%. They also found that patients who have had bariatric surgery are less likely to die of cancer because the cancer mortality was 0.8% for the surgery group and 1.4% at 10 years for the non-surgery group. Right, that's a lot of information. Um, were there any cancers in particular that had a lower incidence in bariatric surgery population? There were. Um, while all of the cancers were lower in the bariatric group, only endometrial cancer was considered statistically significant reduction. In this study, they found that endometrial cancer had the strongest association with obesity. Now, overall, it comes as no surprise that 10 years out, the bariatric surgery group had lost more weight than the non-surgical group. On average, the bariatric surgery group had lost 27.5 kilograms and the non-surgery group had lost 2.7 kilograms. This study is not the first that shows us this relationship. Um, both the Swedish obesity study, as well as several other single center studies, have shown that substantial weight loss is required to see a meaningful reduction in the cancer. And it seems to be dose dependent. So for example, in this study, they found that um, while all of the bariatric surgery patients had a lower risk of cancer uh, at 10 years. The lowest risk of cancer was actually in the patients who lost over 39% of their total weight. Whereas um, for each quartile you go down, the risk of cancer went up a little. But even in the patients that had lost less than 24% of their body weight through surgical means at a lower risk of cancer than the non-surgical group. I think the next logical question is always, why do we think this is happening? Um, and there are certainly a lot of hypotheses 
but there is no um, definitive answers that's going to come from a retrospective um, evaluation such as this. But the current working hypothesis is that there are certain people who are genetically predisposed that when they become obese, the excess fat accelerates cancer development, including uh, because uh, obesity is considered a chronic inflammatory state. Patients with obesity have an increased re uh, release of their sex hormones in both males and females. And there are certain chemicals called adipocine, adip goodness, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over that word, adipokines that seem to be pro-cancer agents. In addition, patients with obesity are more likely to have insulin resistance associated with hyperinsulinemia. And all of that together seems to increase the risk of cancer. Now, one of the things this study did particularly well um, that came from their learnings from other studies had to do with cancer screening. Um, in several other studies that have tried to look at these differences and the weight associated um, improvements in cancer, one of the questions that always seemed to come up in the discussion portion of the patient was, well, maybe the bariatric surgery patients were screened better. If they were screened for breast cancer and colon cancer and prostate cancer before they ever had their bariatric surgery, then maybe that's the explanation. And there's no doubt about it. So this study in particular wanted to collect that data to try to see if they could remove it as a confounding variable. And there's no doubt about it. Um, the bariatric surgery patients were much more likely to have had screening for breast, colorectal, and prostate cancer before they entered the study. But also after they had their bariatric surgery, the bariatric patients were more likely than the non-surgical controls to continue to get screening. So whether it's because now that they feel like a healthier person, they're focusing more on their health, but they're more likely to get those colorectal screenings and breast cancer screenings and prostate cancer screenings. Having said that, though, we have to circle back to the one cancer that had the biggest change was endometrial, and there is no screening test for that that was administered before they had bariatric surgery, and there was no ongoing screening after bariatric surgery. So while screening may have an impact on some of the malignancies, it does not explain this entire phenomenon. Um, this study answered, did very well what other studies have tried to do. And in fact, Dr. Aminian won a very prestigious award for this study. He won, uh, he's one of the top 10 clinical researcher achievement awards by the Clinical Research Forum. Um, that, and that award was just given several weeks ago. So I think this is an excellent study. I think it answers some questions for us and it continues to raise more questions so that we truly need to understand why this is happening and how much weight does someone really need to lose in order to see these benefits. Or I think that was an excellent summary of the study. And I think it also ties in really nicely um, the point that you brought up that obesity um, it does increase your overall state of inflammation. Hello listeners, Patrick Georgeoff here. I wanted to tell you about a very cool study being run by our friends at Brook Army Medical Center. They are working to better define proficiency-based metrics for competency in commonly performed robotic general surgery procedures. 
If you are a general surgery resident or practicing surgeon who performs robotic-assisted cholecystectomies or inguinal hernia repairs, check out the show notes for more information on how you could be compensated $500 per video submitted. That's right, $500 per video submitted. All right, a bit of an addendum. I have since participated in the study. I wanted to support the great work that they're doing and make a few bucks while doing so, so I submitted a number of my robotic videos. It was quick, easy, and seamless. I recommend you do the same. Again, go ahead and check out the show notes for more information. Now, back to our show. And that kind of transitions into our next study that we wanted to talk about, uh, the BRAVES trial. And this is particularly looking at another inflammatory condition, um, non-alcoholic cyanohepatitis. Um, Ivy, can you tell us a little bit more about this study? Sure, Tiff. So this study was actually just published in The Lancet about a week ago, so it's hot off the presses. And I must give kudos to the authors for being able to perform a randomized control trial like the one that they did, and we'll get into more details about that. So NASH stands for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and it is a progressive form of liver disease that is characterized by liver cell injury, including hepatocellular ballooning and inflammation, in addition to steatosis with um, development and consequential liver fibrosis. NASH is important because it can progress to end-stage liver disease, including both cirrhosis and liver cancer. And it is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and death. Unfortunately, there are currently no approved therapeutic or pharmacologic treatment options for NASH, and the treatment is largely limited to lifestyle modifications, the most important of which is weight loss. So it has been recommended previously that patients lose about 10% of their total body weight in order to achieve a clinically significant reduction in um, their NASH disease. So the bariatric metabolic surgery versus lifestyle intervention plus best medical care in non-alcoholic steatohepatitis which is also known as the BRAVE study, was a multi-center, open-label, randomized controlled trial that was performed at three major hospitals in Italy. Patients were included if they were 25 to 70 years um, of age and if they had a BMI between 30 and 55 with biopsy-proven NASH. Patients that were included were randomized one to one to one for three different groups, um, and they were randomized based on their age, gender, their degree of liver disease, as well as presence presence of type 2 diabetes. Um, and they were randomized either into a lifestyle mod- modification plus fast medical care group um, or to two um, surgical interventions, either Roux-en-Y gastric bypass or sleeve gastrectomy. So all of the patients that met inclusion criteria underwent an ultrasound-guided percutaneous liver biopsy prior to randomization and at one year post-treatment. A total of 288 patients met inclusion criteria. So there were 96 patients in each of the three groups. The primary endpoint of this study was the histological resolution of NASH without worsening of fibrosis. And the secondary endpoint of the study was improvement in liver fibrosis by at least one stage with no worsening of 
um, patients NASH disease. So the severity of NASH was scored using both the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease fibrosis score and the NASH Clinical Research Network score. The lifestyle intervention plus best medical care included calorie reduction, exercise, a daily dose of vitamin E, and then for patients who had type 2 diabetes, they were placed on Actos plus a GLP-1 inhibitor. Um, patients who were randomized to the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass underwent an anti-colic, anti-gastric Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, and the BP limb was 75 centimeters, and the Roux limb was 100 centimeters, and patients who underwent sleeve gastrectomy um, had their sleeve gastrectomy performed using a 48 French bougie. A total of 236 patients completed the study protocol. There were no statistically significant differences in baseline age, gender, or baseline um, fatty liver disease scores or liver fibrosis. Patients in the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass group did have a statistically significant higher BMI and hemoglobin A1C levels compared to the um, sleeve gastrectomy and the lifestyle modification groups. 56% of patients um, after undergoing Roux-en-Y gastric bypass had NASH resolution without worsening fibrosis. And this was similar in the sleeve gastrectomy group, so 57% of sleeve patients. And unfortunately, only 16% of patients in the lifestyle modification group had NASH resolution without worsening fibrosis. Um, there was a 37% improvement in NASH in the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass group, 39% after the sleeve gastrectomy, and only 23% of patients in the lifestyle modification group had improvement in their NASH. So patients who underwent bariatric surgery had between 93 to 90%, excuse me, 96% resolution or improvement in their NASH. And only 39% of patients in the lifestyle modification group um, had either improvement or resolution of their NASH. Unfortunately, in addition, 16% of patients in the lifestyle modification group had worsening of their fibrosis over the study period. In this study, were they able to set a goal for weight loss, uh, for resolution or improvement of NASH? And uh, did they find any other factors that impacted the resolution of NASH? Yes, Tiffany. So this study showed that the probability of reaching the primary endpoint of NASH resolution was a 20% weight reduction, which in general is more likely to occur in patients who undergo bariatric surgery than in the lifestyle modification group. They also found that type 2 diabetes negatively predicted NASH resolution. So the underscoring that type 2 diabetes is a major risk factor for NASH is really important um, and is highlighted from this study. Um, Interestingly, the authors performed two additional subgroup analyses because during the study protocol, there were some new recommendations that were released about improvements and resolution of NASH based on fibrosis in the scoring system. And when they used the new recommendations, they found that the differences between the groups persisted and actually that there was a statistically significant higher or greater improvement in liver disease in patients who underwent bariatric surgery compared to the lifestyle modification group.
Well, thank you so much, uh, Ivy, for that summary uh, of of your your study. Again, really uh, highlighting um, the impact that bariatric surgery can have on patients. And I really uh, applaud, again, the authors who did this because randomized trials are not easy to do. One of the things um, I would like, I realized I did misspeak earlier when I was talking about the splendid trial, uh, just so people are clear on the numbers that were involved in this study. They actually screened uh, over 8,700 bariatric patients. And after the exclusions, there were over 5,000 eligible cases, and that's what was matched into the control group in that five-to-one matching. So they the, this study is based on a cohort that was 5,000-plus bariatric surgery patients versus 25,000-plus non-patients. And I'm sorry I misspoke earlier, um, but just wanted to clarify that. Now, I'm interested in Part of what I think is interesting about both of these studies is they found a difference, and then they really tried to quantify how much weight do you have to lose in order to see these health benefits? Because we've known for years in the medical literature that sometimes losing as little as 5 to 8% of your body weight, you start seeing improvements in your diabetes or improvements in hypertension, uh, decreased use of CPAP. But for these comorbidities in particular, the very durable weight loss and the durable decrease in the inflammatory state that's going to result in a lower cancer risk or a durable result to decrease, excuse me, liver fibrosis and NASH, it seems like it's requiring a much more substantial weight loss than we've typically seen in the medical literature. However, we also know that there are some amazing new anti-obesity medications uh, that are either on the market in the form of semi-glutide or currently going through FDA trials. And I've been asked quite often in the last few weeks, do I think bariatric surgery is going to be dying? You know, are medicines going to overtake what we do? And maybe it's just because I've been doing this a long time, but I really don't think these medicines are going to put us out of a job that semi-glutide at the doses necessary that are the FDA indication for obesity, on average, help people lose 12.4%. And the terzepatide study, looking at how much weight loss did type 2 diabetics lose with terzepatide, was 16%. And while those are incredibly uh, positive numbers, and I think they will help a significant number of people lose a significant amount of weight, it's not seeming like these medicines are going to cross that threshold and be able to impact things such as cancer risk, cancer mortality, and NASH. But I'm always happy to be proven wrong, and it's going to take a lot more literature and long-term follow-up of the obesity medical patients to see if these medicines can achieve these amazing results that surgery has. Well, thank you both Corey and Ivy for the discussion for these two important studies. These studies really help to build our knowledge of how obesity really overall impacts our health. And I think that underscores really what Corey was saying about the overall inflammatory state um, and how it cannot obesity's uh, bariatric surgery cannot only decrease the incidence of our current medical comorbidities, but also decrease the future incidence of obesity-associated cancer and cancer-related uh, mortality. 
um, and really helps to improve patients' health overall. Viv and Corey, thank you so much. And Corey, I definitely agree with you. I think the current weight loss medica medications, there's certainly a role for them and perhaps they're complementary. But what we've been seeing, especially in the longer term data, is there's sort of this plateau in weight loss that, um, you know, is patients kind of hit that a little bit sooner than they would after their bariatric surgery and certainly do not have as significant weight loss. So um, it has been a pleasure being your behind the knife bariatric surgery team for the past two years. We've really enjoyed um, being able to talk about our specialty. And I think Tiffany and Corey can agree that we could talk about these journal articles uh, for several more hours. Um, but I do agree, Dr. Aminian has, you know, published recently several important studies, and we just were able to highlight one of them in our last um, episode with you guys. So um, we wish you all the best. We've really enjoyed our time, and we hope that you've learned a thing or two about bariatric surgery from us. Take care, everyone. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.